A child refuses to eat the food before them. No amount of bargaining, threatening, or pleading will change their mind. The parents, of course, freak out. Feeding your child is this primal instinct that you have. And when something interrupts that daily process, the feelings of failure and panic can be quite intense for these parents. So they reach out to friends and family, maybe even a doctor, and they're told the same thing. It's just a phase. All kids have this picky phase, you know? Don't worry so much about it. But where is the line between a picky child and a child with a dangerous eating disorder? Hey everyone, and welcome to Ed on Ed, the show where we dive deep into the topic of eating disorders, looking below the surface and beyond the basic. I'm your host, Liz, and I'm ready to learn something new. I hope you are, too. It's a sunny winter day here in Austin, Texas, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Ed Tyson. Good afternoon. Hello. Good afternoon. So when we decided to start making this podcast, one of our goals was to diversify the types of stories that are told about people with eating disorders. Right. And through those stories to, you know, break down and shatter these stereotypes about what an eating disorder is and who can have an eating disorder. What are we going to be learning about today? We're going to be learning about early onset eating disorders, those that occur in children. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people think of eating disorders as primarily starting in the puberty, teenage years, and don't often think about kids having an eating disorder. Right. And they're correct that the majority of eating disorders do occur starting in the teen years, usually are just preteen, but most people actually, when you pin them down, when did you first start to have some realization about this that you thought maybe you were too big or you were supposed to be smaller? Right. So people who might really present with symptoms that get them sent to a doctor in their teens or late adolescence, when they really think about it, might have some of these formative memories of having those thoughts at the very least when they were children. I actually was talking to one of my friends who struggled with an eating disorder and she was telling me she thinks it was fourth grade when she first had the idea of restricting, of starting to restrict. And she said it wasn't bad. She was like, how old is fourth grade? It's like, I think that's about 10, like nine or 10 years old. So we are talking pretty young kids, of course, not even recognizing what was going on as an eating disorder until her 20s. Yeah, the most famous book, probably the best read book on eating disorders is, I think it is, is by Jenny Schaefer. It's called Life Without Ed. And when she talks about it, she holds up a tutu she would wear when she was a little girl. The thing is only about two feet long. And she said, I can remember seeing myself in that and thinking my legs were too big. Hmm. That was maybe kindergarten, first grade, perhaps. Right. I mean, I'm having a flashback to when I had to wear a tutu for a school play. (laughs) But it was more of a, I I wanted to be one of the tin soldiers. Didn't want to be a sugar plum fairy, but I was a girl, so that's what I had to do. Um, Well, so we kind of got this idea now. We're starting this discussion about kids developing an eating disorder, but we always kind of want to ground it in one person's particular story to give us somebody to follow through their journey. Who are we Mm -hmm. going to be learning about today? This is going to be about Zach. So how did you first get involved with Zach's case? His mom brought him in after having seen the pediatrician because he had had about two months worth of weight loss that had started right about spring break. And She said he started exercising a lot, even though he had always been athletic, even though he's 12, he was very athletic, involved in sports, but he started to run more, run on the treadmill, play basketball, and he would do, uh, he would cycle, he would ride his bike a lot and do lots of calisthenics, sometimes more than two hours a day. Wow. So, I mean, he's training as if he were 
a professional athlete at this point. Yeah, 12, like he's going to the Olympics. <laughs> right. Did she also notice a change in his eating habits? Right. He started to eat healthy. He cut out carbs and he would have only liquids without calories. He wouldn't drink anything with calories. And he cut out rice and other foods that he considered not to be healthy. Right. Yeah. We're putting heavy quotation marks around the word healthy. Correct. This is his perception. So Zach has been over-exercising, under-eating for about two months. Right. And you said mom had been concerned even earlier, right? She had already taken him to see somebody? Well, when this happened, before she came to see me, she took him to a pediatrician. And the pediatrician said that, yeah, it's going on, but try to get him to eat more and come back in three months. Helpful. (laughs) A little sarcastic there. So she had seen somebody. They told her not to worry, right? Correct. Just give him some more food. We'll check in later. So the mom's still concerned, and she reaches out to you. How does she find you? Well, she knew me. She, it turns out, came to see me when she was in college uh, for her eating disorder, as did her sister. Wow. What do you remember about her back in those days? I remember actually not very much about it. I think she did well, is what I recall, and was not very entrenched for a long time, and so recovery was relatively quick, but I'm sure the uh, effect of it was quite a memory for her. And honestly, in this particular case, there might be a silver lining in the fact that even though she has a doctor telling her not to worry, since she's been down this road, she's seeing the signs, and she's like, know what, I I am going to worry, and I'm going to go to that trusted other source who took it seriously when I had this problem. Right. So... She gets an appointment with you. Yeah. And you're about to see a kid, right? This is a 12-year-old, a child. What kind of prep do you do? Is there any way you enter an exam differently when it's a kid versus an adult? I have the room not designed just for little children with Bambi on the walls and so on. (laughs) So it's a regular kind of exam room, but it's comfortable. It's not sterile looking. There's a sofa in there and chairs that are comfortable to sit in. The exam table is off to the side and is not a primary focal point of everything. And I direct my attention to the person who's in to see me. In this case, Zach. I look at I talk to him and say, why did why is your mom bring you in today? Was that something you were interested in? Why or why not? Finding out, well, tell me about how this affected you. How do you feel about it? Tell me about the rest of your life. What, let's talk about other stuff. What else do you do? Tell me about yourself. I think that approach is really important for kids. It's important for everyone, but for a kid to go into a place of authority, like a doctor's office, some doctors would only talk to the parent because technically, you know, the parent is the one who's going to sign off on medical decisions. You know, they technically control this situation. But if you really want to build that trust, you need the kid to feel they have agency over what's going on and that they're an active part of it. So I like that you're directing everything at them instead of at the parent. That's a small move that I think would make a big difference. I also like the setup of your office that it doesn't really feel like the other times they've been to a doctor. Feels probably a little bit different, like, hmm. There's a couch in here. That's (laughs) if I was a kid, I'd be like, what? (laughs) Where am I? And there's it's not one of those closed in little rooms Mm -hmm. either. I want them to feel comfortable and heard. All right. So tell me about how this went as you're talking to Zach for the first time. What do you find out? Well, in spite of when I read that mom wrote that he's considered shy and very well liked by the teachers, once I got him talking, he was very open to talk about it. He told me about exercise. He told me about school and his grades and so on. And I asked him about what all do you do and then how much do you do and what do you eat and why that? He was very open and probably pretty interested in finding out what's going on because this was weird for him too. 
He had lost his interest in the other things in his life that used to be used to be very important to him. So he feels like all of a sudden my full focus is on exercise and food. I used to have other things I cared about. And he's able to recognize that in himself. Yes. That there has been a change that right. he doesn't really feel like he had control over. Yes. This was out of control, clearly. One of the things I noticed right off was he was constantly moving. And this is what his parents said, that he was, he used to be active, but now he just does not stop. As in he's squirming in his chair? Is that what you mean? He's getting up from his chair? What's, what do you mean? He was always moving his hands or his arms. And one thing in particular he was doing, the parents said, this has come on recently and we don't know what to do about it. But he would flap his hands like on his pants or whatever. He would do that nonstop. That's really interesting, and I imagine could be kind of distracting as you're talking to him. Do you talk to him about the flapping at first, or do you ignore it? I decided to talk about more important things first, and then get to that. I said, I noticed that you're doing this. Is that something you've noticed? Yes. Can you stop it, or do you want to stop it? He wants to stop it, but he can't. Hmm. He said, I try, but I can't. The only time his parents said it stopped was when he was asleep. So what's going through your mind with this kind of unusual symptom of tapping on the legs constantly? What are some of the things you're considering might be causing this? Well, you learn in medicine to follow certain things to look at what are the possible causes of. Down the list, you know, is there anything neurologic going on why would there be something primarily neurological like a tumor well it was both hands so it's like one side of the head is it some other thing like that could it be some other manifestation of something else that would be very unusual and i i've seen lots of things and when he was constantly moving and all that i wondered if this was a manifest excuse me a manifestation of malnutrition mm. the brain when it's starved is going to do unusual things. Yeah, and in our athletes episode, we talked about how if you're malnourished to a certain extent, your brain is so starved of food, one of the only resources left is lactic acid, which you produce through exercise, through right. movement. And so people in this state can feel a intense compulsion to keep exercising, even though they are so malnourished and I definitely could see how constantly moving your arms could be a similar thing going on with this kid. It's interesting you bring that up because this is about the time that I started to think about there's got to be something else driving this and these people are malnourished. What is the actual mechanism? And that's when I realized when I saw the low glucose in these people that, okay, how's the brain being fed? It's not glucose. What is it? And then you find out this movement, this activity, either an actual sport kind of activity, or is it just movement that burns lactic acid or produces lactic acid? And in turn, that's the only thing they've got left to feed the brain. Right. I mean, I we have discussions like this off mic all the time about what you're doing in your work. And yeah, so many cases of people you know, the entire day on an exercise bike, not stopping. Yes. And they feel like they can't stop, even though they're very sick. So that could be what's going on here. What did you find medically in your exam? Let me add one more thing on that, because one of the complaints he had was that he had fatigue at night. Eventually, you're going to run out of steam and he couldn't move. I mean, he was just so tired. And that caused him a lot of concern that he was that fatigued. He could not do his usual sport, but he was doing that movement. So you're finding out all this anecdotal information through conversation, but you're also doing a medical exam. What do you find out is going on medically with this kid? Well, one of the things I did at first, <clears throat> pardon me, one of the things I did was to have him do a little subtraction. This is a kid who did very well in school. He makes all A's and teachers love him. And 
uh, shy and all that, but I asked them to do some simple subtraction, single-digit subtraction. We call it the serial sevens. I have them start with, in this case, 100, and as quickly and accurately as you can, subtract seven. Go. Oh, God. 93, 86. Hmm, Liz, are you feeding your brain? Um. <laughs> 79 <laughs> yeah right uh, 72 yeah that's, and that so, is kind of hard <laughs> correct told him, like, it's kind of hard i've had people who are if it math was fives majors. it'd be really easy oh yeah or twos fives. but sevens is a little hard. Well, i did have a patient once who could not do fives wow yeah seriously she couldn't and she was a the top graduate student her professor said in the department that they had ever had and she couldn't subtract five so i, I did something with him and this is how it went. After 100, got 93 right off. And I usually mark mark every second that it takes for them to do it. Mm. So not dramatically, but just make a little note. And so he goes 93, 86, 79, 72. And that's how he was going clearly slow for him so it was taking him an inordinately long time to do that because i don't let them i tell them you can't use your fingers or toes or you can't get help from a parent or anything you just have to do it in your brain and that was slow for him so i noticed right off in spite of his ability to talk and be otherwise communicative there was probably some slowing of the higher cognitive processing that he makes up because he's so intelligent. Okay, so that's one thing you're noting mm-hmm. in your exam, potentially slower cognitive function. Right. What else do you find? Then, So that's a general aspect about him. Then next, do vital signs. So his weight. Well, it turns out when this all began, he was about 114 pounds, and he's 5'3". And then a week ago, he was down to 99 But that was after his parents had already tried to get him to eat a lot more. And this week, a week later, he's down to 96. So he's rapidly declining in his weight. The concern here for me is heightened more so than it would be for an adult because kids are supposed to be rapidly growing. Correct. So a decrease is Mm -hmm. even more pronounced than an adult whose weight, you know, fluctuates a little bit. He's supposed to be gaining weight but he is losing weight. So it's an even bigger red flag than maybe it would be in an adult. An athletic kid like this, who's a little bit precocious physically, otherwise would tend to be gaining weight right now for sure. He's not only not staying the same, he's going down fairly quickly. I also noted that he felt, he also complained of certain things like he felt cold a lot. He uh, was cold. He had very cold hands. He had capillary refill delay which we've talked about before like if you squeeze your fist open your hand up how fast does the pink come back to your palms and fingers his was very delayed in his toes his feet his fingers his hands he also sorry i'm gonna pause you there just to kind of explain for the listeners what that's a sign of you know in a healthy person this might happen in a very cold environment right your body starts clamping down on your external little capillaries to keep the blood to the vital organs in this case it's happening in a normally temperatured exam room showing something abnormal is going on yeah he was very cold and that means the body is trying to save energy rerouting blood to more in the core to keep the vital organs warm and hopefully not losing the fingers from gangrene or something. Right. It really can be dramatic what happens. And that happened in him. I also noticed that, you know, I take the pulse and the blood pressure. Now, this is important. His body temperature, by the way, was two points below normal. Hmm. So he's 96.8 instead of 98.6. What does that mean, two degrees? Well, if you have a two-degree fever, you're 100.8, 100.6. People feel really hot. What people don't realize is if you drop your temperature two degrees, the amount of heat you would let go or radiate from a fever, now you're saving that much heat by lowering the mm. temperature. Yeah. So, Again, something else says this kid's really trying, his body's trying to fight what he's been doing. And 
uh, restricting with his food. Then I do a blood pressure and a pulse lying down and then standing. So lying down, his blood pressure was 94 over 46. Which is already pretty low. That 46 is very low. His pulse was 44. Very low. Very low. Very low. You know, kids' heart rates are naturally a little bit higher than adults. If an adult had this heart rate, it would be a major concern. A kid having this heart rate, even more of a concern. Yes, that is absolutely right. And he had a thready pulse, which means it wasn't the good thump. It felt more like blood slipping under your finger instead of just being hitting it and popping it up. Then when I stood him up, I could barely hear his blood pressure, and it was 92 over 74, so that bottom number kicked up 30 points, which on him is a 60% increase just to stand up. And his heart rate went from 44 to 72. Which is still a low heart rate. Low heart rate. (laughs) It's going up a lot, but he's still in a low heart rate. So it is important for people to understand it's not just the number. It can be the degree of change as well. He has, what, a 30-point change just from standing up, which is telling me his body sees standing up as a form of exercise. It is putting the demand on his heart as if he was lifting weights or running when all he's doing is standing up. That is well put. Yes. It's quite a challenge for the body. So, I mean, I also just want to give props to the mom right now. All of these signs point to someone who is really sick. And if you take to a doc, take a kid like this to a doctor and they sit them there and measure their pulse sitting up, but not when they're lying down and standing up, they miss this amount of change. And that bit of information's pretty critical. Right. And it's possible, you know, the doctor they saw beforehand missed some of these signs or it was it's getting bad quicker. But it's a really good thing that she took him in to see you because it's obvious this would not have resolved itself in three weeks with a positive outcome. Three months. Three months? Oh, my gosh. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Definitely not. (laughs) Well, that's what she said afterwards. She's, oh, my gosh, he would not have survived. You know, I'm having all of these moments of hearing these vital signs and being like, this is even worse for a kid. But I'm curious to know, is there a different effect having an eating disorder in your developing years? Is that different than having one as an adult? Are the consequences worse or different if a kid is severely restricting like this? And that's another reason why it's important to consider this age group as a particularly different than say somebody who is a 40 year old adult or even as a newborn or whatever, they have different needs and demands and so on. The body, the brain and the rest of the body is rapidly growing. He should be gaining height rapidly. And I'm sure it stopped his height stopped for now. And because of this growth that the body didn't require and therefore it was focusing energy on what it needed to, And so, yes, it's a big deal when children who are supposed to be growing stop growing. Now, I plotted out his BMI on a graph. Which is the body mass index. It's this kind of natural curve upward, gentle curve upward over time. Yeah, and it shows the general curves of what most people do. From the uh, 95th percentile down to the 5th percentile, there are these curves. And definitely at this age, it's going up at about a 40-degree angle. He drops down at about an 85-degree angle, crossing two lines on the growth curve. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. And what should be, you know, two points trending upward is almost a directly down line. Yes. As if he just drops off this curve altogether. He went from the 75th percentile, which is where he had been tracking all his life, down to the 27th percentile in two months. You know, this is reminding me of gymnasts 
which have come up a lot in our episodes, mm-hmm. but that a lot of female gymnasts, their puberty will be delayed because, you know, whether we want to say it's good practice or not, a lot of them are eating less than the amount of exercise they're putting on their body, causing them their body not even to be able to go through puberty until after they've quit the sport. Yeah. So I'm, I'm worried about that for this kid as well. Sure. He, he certainly wants to be an athlete and this would not be the direction to go. I mean, that plane, when I show this graph to families, what I say is this, if this was you on a plane flying Southwest airlines, mm-hmm. and it was going down like this. What would you want to happen? And they usually go, uh, would you, what would you want the pilot to do? And they usually go, Pull up. And I'll say, is that a question or would you be (laughs) screaming it out loud? Pull up. Mm. And my advice to clinicians out there is put it down the change on the BMI graph. That's all I almost always use it for is how much of a change there's been. And when you show that to somebody, a parent like this is your kids going down. Right. And you see the grasp of the whole problem right there. Right. And I know as a parent, that would be my response would be, we've got to get this kid. And I'm sure she was already feeling that way too. Knowing that she's seeking you out, she's already feeling, we've got to turn this around. We got to pull up, you know, we got to get him back on the right track. But that seems more of a strategy that you would use for a parent. What kind of strategies do you use to connect with Zach and help him understand what's going on? During the exam, you know, he was an athlete. He is an athlete. And I pointed out to him where he had lost all this muscle. He had lost muscle around his collarbone, around his shoulders, and his uh, shoulder blade. He could feel the the bones were prominent, but not because the bones are sticking out, but because the muscle around them has shrunk. And that was important for him because he knew to be a good athlete, he needed muscle. And it made him concerned, for sure. He did not realize that. And he didn't understand the importance until it's sort of dramatically, dude, I have them put their hand on it, have them feel it. And they go, oh. I like that. Very tactile, very able to feel the change that has happened. And also to make it clear for the kid, because he's probably thinking, I'm exercising all the time. That's making me a good athlete. It's preparing me to do what I want to be doing. And to show him, but you're not building the muscle that you need to perform at your best is a good way to get through to him in his, you know, his mental state, and what I, he cares about. And I emphasize to him, I know this is not what you anticipated, not what you want. And this was all very well intended. You wanted to get better. You wanted to eat well, all of that. And yet this is what happened. I want you to know this is all reversible. So I don't want you to feel guilty about it. This is something that caught you as opposed to you catching it. Uh, you didn't go out and look for this, but this happened. You know, something we also talked about in the athletes episode is the effect this type of restriction can have on bones Yes, and bone growth. I'm curious, you know, when you're a kid, you're building bone like crazy. And I'm curious if having it at that point can cause issues with bones as well. Bone density, especially in females, really takes off during adolescence. And that's the most bone growth they will have except early in childhood. If, however, they are like Zach here, their bone density starts to drop quickly. It turns out males also lose bone density, maybe even faster than females. So one of the things I did was check his sex hormone, testosterone. We were going to talk about that during lab results, but it turns out his was low. Mm. So I know from that, and I could have predicted it, that if it wasn't low, it was going to drop low pretty quickly. So for that to turn around, the body really needs to have a track record of getting nutrition in before it's going to start reversing this. So to summarize at this point, your conversation with him 
has set off some red flags. His weight drop of his BMI so suddenly in the past two months, the way that his heart rate changes lying down versus standing up, his blood pressure as well. What else do you look into, right? I feel like you almost already have enough to be worried about, but of course you always want to look. And you want to define things a little bit more. So Mm. I did an EKG on him. And the EKG, you know, as long as, you know, we saw the heart rate of 44 or whatever, once I had him laying down for a while while we were hooking it up and all that, his heart rate got to 36. Wow. That's really scary. And I wanted to clarify something because it was something I had learned when I was younger that I didn't know the full story. And one of the things you're taught is that if you're a really strong athlete, you actually have a lower heart rate. But you would see a lower heart rate with a really strong pump, right? That's the idea is that your heart is getting strong enough that each pump is doing an incredible job. You would not see a low heart rate with a thready pulse that is decreasing. And low blood pressure. That jumps just from standing up. blue hands. Blue hands, right. Cold hands. When you teach kids, because I feel like I learned it in school, when I was young or when I was an athlete, maybe mm-hmm. a trainer mentioned it or something, that lower heart rate means you're becoming a better athlete. It's also your heart needs to be getting stronger because a low heart rate yes. can also mean a very weak heart. So the question is, when is a low heart rate or bradycardia, as we say in mm-hmm. medicine, when is that a sign of health and mm-hmm. fitness or a sign of illness? And what do we see on this EKG? So the EKG is notable. Number one, the heart rate is very slow. It it was witnessed to 36. His QT interval, which is for the people out there, the nerds who want to about EKGs, starts to get a little bit longer. Wasn't in the critical zone, but we started to wonder about it. But he had no variability in the heart rate. It was 36 so basically, about every two seconds, he had a heartbeat. And you could wow. almost set a metronome to it. That is not normal. We call that a poor beat-to-beat variability. Hmm. Normally, as you're laying there thinking things or breathing, uh, stuff like that, your heart rate's going to change. Hmm. But his was flat, flat time. It was like a metronome. like One, two. Right like that and didn't change so that indicates there's probably what we call a nutritional cardiomyopathy meaning the heart muscle is malnourished it just can't respond like it should it's just holding on for dear life that's it's, correct it's pumping when it can pump and that's rather all it would not on. do it but yeah. it has to <laughs> and so then you think wait a minute What would happen when I exercise this heart? Holy smoke, it's having a hard time at 36 beats a minute. So what happens when he walks? What does his heart rate go to? What if he runs? What if he runs upstairs? Which is what he's He's been been doing. doing. He's been cycling. He's been running. He's been working out. So, yeah. So we know that he's been pushing it to its limit. And that was one of the things that had been noted, was he would work out hard. So this idea, now you see all the ads for like Peloton or something like that, and people are on the bike going, go, 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 you got to go, 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 go. Work out as hard as you can. Whereas 20 years ago, people were talking about aerobic fitness. Now it's more about anaerobic. You want to go, go, go the whole time. It may be okay as long as your heart's ready for it. Mm. So bad things happen at the extremes of heart rate. Right, If it goes too Too fast or too slow, Mm. that can be bad. And both of these can happen in someone like him. Right, because he's too low, just existing. Yes. And his heart could easily be going way faster than it's capable of doing with exercise. Because he's having a 30-point jump just from standing up. So imagine what happens at night when he's asleep, too. Yeah. Which is when your heart rate goes to its lowest. So I'm sure he's in the 20s. At this point, I'm going, he's in the 20s. Now, most people would say, you got to go to the ER, you got to go do all this. 
And that was the question. What do you do? So. So are we ready to get into it or there's some other findings? There's some other findings on lab work. So a couple of things that we found out was on his lab, and I've got them here, the original lab I was able to find. Nice. So one of the things you remember, he was drinking non-caloric liquids. Well, he wasn't drinking enough. Now, I'm going to get into some technical information here, but we'll try to explain it. There's two measures of hydration and kidney function in the blood work. One is called BUN, blood urea nitrogen, BUN or BUN as we call it, and creatinine. Creatinine, not creatine, creatinine (laughs) is a breakdown product of muscle. The less muscle you have, the lower your creatinine value should be. Kidneys keep it in a very narrow origin. Well, the narrow range for adults is like 0.4 to 1.1. His was 1.1, but remember, he's lost a lot of muscle. Mm. His creatinine should be about a 0.3 or 0.4, and he's at a 1.1. That right there tells me that right now his kidney function is about half of what it should be. Wow, because it should be getting filtering out, peeing out this creatinine if they are functioning normally because it's at this upper level, but you know he has been losing muscle mass that you put two and two together. You figure that out. So his kidneys are also in trouble. Yes. And that's because kidneys need blood flow, which means you've got to have a pulse rate and a blood pressure to pump that Mm -hmm. in there. Now, when you exercise, are you going to preferentially put blood into the kidneys or are you going to send it through the muscles? Right. And that's what's been happening. And that's why the damage has been done. The good news is that this age is probably pretty reversible. All right. I I like to hear that. Maybe that's sort of one of the upsides of being a kid is that kids can bounce back. As we say that they're very resilient once good things start happening. And why you don't want to wait three more months. Yeah. What do you suggest? How do you go about helping Zach? Well, um, for the kidneys right now, it's here's how much fluid you need to be drinking, at least three to four liters a day. And uh, that's spread out. I don't care if it's carbonated or if it's green or blue or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. The body will take the water out of it. So non-caffeinated preferably because that tends to make you pee out more. And so we want to get at least the fluid amount correct. Next is we're not going to put you in a position where you're going to be not sending blood to the kidneys. So that means no exercise. Mm. Right there, that tells us no exercise. Nothing else right there that does. And then when you look at other things, well, he has two liver function tests that were called that are called the AST and ALT, and both of those are elevated. <clears throat> now that's called a hepatitis. Well, people usually think of infectious hepatitis. Right. Is it hepatitis B or C or whatever? Or is it from some other infection? In this case, that's not what it is. At this point, he's eating his liver for protein and probably for calories. Wow. That's, yeah, your body's starting to eat itself. Yes. 12 years old. It's called autophagy. Eating oneself. That's... Yeah, I I don't even know if a 12-year-old could process that. I'm sure mom would, you know, the way I'd, freak out. Well, I, I told would. him about it, Yeah, and I said, so this tells us that really you need to have more protein in your diet that is spared to do the work it's supposed to do. So you have to have enough calories so that it can be spared. Right. And for mom, the way I put this is, you might say your son is having pate every day. Oh, God. <laughs> the trouble is it's his own pate. Pate yeah. is that yes, like, oh, homogenized oh, goose liver or whatever for people who don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. That means he needs more calories. What do you suggest for more calories? Well, I'll get to that. There's more on the lab. Oh, wow. His white blood cells were down to 3.6 or 3,600, which is below normal. Mm. And his red cells were low. So, and then his neutrophil count was low. So he literally just doesn't have a lot of blood. 
going on. He doesn't have a lot of protein in his bone marrow to make, to make white blood. blood cells and red blood cells. So what if he, now this is before COVID, but yeah. what if he got COVID? Or any other illness. Or any other illness. If he got appendicitis, if he got pneumonia from walking pneumonia, or he had... Or if he got injured. If he got injured. And lost some blood. That's right. And the he healing would be in process. Trouble. Yeah. Wow. He would okay. be in trouble. So the bone marrow actually can't produce bone marrow products, i.e. red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets, as well as it used to. Wow. So... This becomes important when I see this now. I actually use the idea this is why you need protection against COVID right mm. here because you are immune suppressed right now. You're at now at high risk. Yeah. Compared to most people your age not being high risk, but you are now because you can't fight right. it as well. And yeah, and he he would be high risk for COVID, but he's high risk for any infection. Yes. He any infection. What has happened in the past two months has caused his body to be immunocompromised. He doesn't have a disease, but he's, he's highly susceptible to it yes, because of malnourishment. Is. Yes. His testosterone, which limit range of normal is 241 to like 827 or so, he was down to 21. Wow. Almost not detectable. Females probably have more uh, testosterone than he does right now. So he's... Yeah, so then that brings up bone density. Bone it density. also brings up puberty, yep. I assume, is Growth. halted as well. Growth is halted. So he was in trouble. He was in trouble. Real trouble. And so fast, too. That's that it's been two months, right? Yeah. And this kid has labs that appear somebody who is on death's door, who, if one bad thing happens, if he gets sick, if he gets injured, if he continues like this, you know, we're looking at really bad things happening to this kid. It happened so fast. What would have happened within two weeks? I am right. afraid of what would have happened. His mother was horrified. So we talked about, idea. yeah, we talked about how kids can bounce back. But do you notice with kids a more quick severe drop off in terms of health is that something it's interesting you said that because that it just occurred to me to talk about that i see people who have really dropped their weight fast these young these especially early onset ones they tend to really go down really fast and what people don't realize is within four weeks two weeks you can have somebody who is severely ill and dangerously on the edge of something really horrible happening. Wow. Yeah, it puts, you know, we feel this sense of urgency. We feel this sense of urgency around kids eating and growing. And for good reason, as you're saying, it can so quickly turn the other way and become something that is deadly and very dangerous. Right. So, I mean, I'm sure mom is very scared. I'm sure she is horrified. You can just see the look on her face. When I demonstrate to her the muscle loss, the lab, the EKG, what do we have to do? What do we have to do? So I said, at this time, he's very dangerous. We've got two choices. Does he go in the hospital? And if he does, where's the hospital he can go to that knows how to deal with this? Because not all will. For example, in the Houston area, Texas Children's is the only hospital that will take an eating disorder for medical care. All of for for this age group for yeah. children eighteen and under, or under eighteen, I guess. No matter what hospital they go to, they all go to Texas Children's. Now, in other cities, that's not the case. Well, what if you're not where you're very close to a center like that, or like when COVID's been around and they're completely full? What do you do? I, I'm literally flabbergasted over here. Why would a children's hospital not be able to help a kid who's this sick? Oh, children's would. Oh, okay. But not all children's hospital really know how to manage eating disorders Oh, but they well. might not know right. what this particular case Most requires. of them are doing better at that. And 
but what if you didn't have a children's hospital? You're somewhere in Montana or, you know, wherever. I'm, this isn't just for the United States. I mean, there are a lot mm-hmm. of places around where the hospital doesn't know any of this. Mm-hmm. We're fortunate that we are having people, fortunately, all over the world who listen to this. And they don't necessarily have a children's hospital within a day's drive. Right. And... You know, it's just it's it's head scratching. Do you do you credit this to the fact that when you're taught in medical school about eating disorders, the little that is required, it's not usually children that are brought up. Is that why that people just aren't prepared for this particular case? Or is there some other reason? Oh, it's lack of training and lack of interest. Hmm. And I think eating disorders in general are intimidating or may strip some of a doctor and nurses or somebody else's own issues about this kind of stuff. Right. But real talk, all of these labs, all of these issues could be a kid who is severely malnourished because of like cancer yes. or something, right? That has mm-hmm. caused this to happen to their yep. body. They can't absorb food. They can't keep it down. So they end up in this condition. Places would be able to handle that better, right? Is it just kind of that mindset shift of it's an eating disorder? So so in other words, yes, all the hospitals should be able to manage this. But the question comes, how do you feed them? Mm. How do you get somebody who doesn't want to eat or hasn't been eating? How do you get them to do that? That's where the gears start to lock up. So that's why I was saying that, that yes, doctors can understand how to refeed somebody like this and give them fluids and let's monitor their heart and all that. So what's the decision for Zach in particular? We talked about it at length. Mom and, and by the way, dad was there too. I'm, I'm sorry I didn't mention that earlier. He was there. He was very concerned. Both parents were very concerned. This was really driving them nuts also with his behavior, but what do we do? Does he go to school? Does he not go to school? How do we get this? And after talking with Zach and his parents and the options of where to go, and then when I refer somebody somewhere, I don't any longer have any say or mm. control what happens. I said, can you do this? Can I said to him and I said to the parents, can you eat this amount of food? Start off this much, but every three hours, some mix of fat, protein, and carbohydrate. So we're getting a balance. And I don't care what form it comes in. I tell him I don't care if it's from Bubba's pool hall and barbecue to if it's brought oh, down in the back of a it. yak by a Buddhist monk from the top of the Himalayas. It doesn't matter Fat, protein, carbohydrate every three hours because the brain can't store glucose. I just want to clarify for those listening, we are not sponsored by (laughs) Bubba's Pool Hall. We are just fans. We are fans of their wonderful food. (laughs) We were not paid to endorse Bubba's Pool Hall. (laughs) And they say yes. So the point is that He needs this. And the reason he needs it that frequently, even though it's hard to think about that, is that the brain cannot store food. And it has to have a constant supply. And he's going to be burning it up. And as he gets better, it'll be burning up faster. So there'll be a gradual progression. But right now, can you do this? And can you drink this much liquid? And they said, yes. And I said, let me know how he does tomorrow. And we'll go on a day-to-day thing like this and it turns out he 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 was very concerned he said I'll do it wow so they come back in a week and his pulse felt normal this time in a week and well no less than a week excuse me he came back in 4 days to be seen i, I think there was a friday and a monday and his pulse was 68 wow. lying down going up to 108 when he stood up and some of that is probably because he was hydrated now, and he hadn't been. So the dehydration was getting corrected. So that helped the heart not have to work so hard because they didn't have, 
empty pipes to pump water through or blood through and his hand slapping. That was better, they said. It wasn't nearly as much. He could stop it now every once in a while. And at two weeks, it had disappeared. I mean, this is such a whirlwind that happened in this kid's life. Yes. Such a quick fall and seemingly such a quick recovery. But how critical that time was, you know, that you got the support he needed. Family was on board. He was on board. But I'm curious, like, did Zach reflect on what caused this really quick change in him and how he was able to change back? wonderful question to ask and it's really interesting to hear you could tell he was a kid who while he was quiet and shy kind of but high performing he was probably very empathic and intuitive he said this began he was able to come back and talk about when it began he said when he was in gym one day in the locker room he was changing clothes And he heard two guys talking about another kid. Now, these kids were a little bit farther down from him, but he just overheard the conversation. They were making fun of a kid because they were saying this kid's too fat, and they were laughing about it. And he thought, I don't ever want that to happen to me. And that was the day it all began. And using kid logic, which... A lot of adults would also use. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be bullied for being fat. How can I prevent myself from being fat? I stop eating. Yeah. Like that extreme of a response. Yeah, just this and stop. You take somebody who is very disciplined and, and very scared, and that's what he did. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm calling that mental step ridiculous because I'm not. It's a very... Like, it's like a self-preservation response. Yeah. Because at that age, and at any age, Mm. the kind of cruelty of that type of bullying is, it just, it messes with your head. It's enormous, yes. Yeah, it's a huge thing to contend with. And then, so it's like, I need to prevent this from happening to me. There's only one thing I can do. You know, so I, I don't blame him for that response. Kids can be so cruel. But was he able then later to kind of reflect on, I don't know, just interpersonal relationships or that it wasn't the outcome he was hoping for, so he changed his behavior? He realized that obviously what he did, he understood why. And he now has found a way that he can take care of himself But I think he found a lot of empathy for people who are being picked on, be it for their weight or something else, and how dangerous and the ramifications, not just to that person, but to others. So he he reflected in his quiet moments, which he was like, "This, this, this boy was deep, and he thought deeply, and he felt deeply, and... Fortunately, he really reversed it. And that's another thing about these young, early onset eating disorders. They do tend, when they get the care they need, to turn it around faster. They go down fast, but they can come back up fast with the right amount of support. It's so good to hear. I think it's also just a moment for anyone listening to reflect on the power the way we speak about ourselves and others can have. Right. The kid who was being bullied didn't even hear this. No. A different kid did. I'm These sure that kids, kids heard it somewhere. Sure. But I mean, like in this mm-hmm. particular moment, something incredibly negative was said and it affected this third party and, you, you know, let this kid to almost die. die. And just the power. Those kids would have never even known it. Exactly. Like the power our words have for good or for ill. And Kids can be really cruel, but adults can be too. And so thinking about how our 
words affect people, especially when you're around children, like they're listening. They take in so much. If you have an empathic kid, not much gets by them. A, A raised eyebrow, a change in the tone of voice, whatever, they pick up on it and it means a lot. This brought up the issue also of what about in the home, how you talk about fat food figure and fitness and in what context and what does healthy mean? Is it always restriction and heavy exercise or. And you know, in this particular case, I'm making an assumption, but I'm assuming since the mom had her own experience with an eating disorder that she was probably very good about the way she talked about food around her kid, very conscious of the impact her words could have. But I think a lot of parents don't realize that or are unsure what the right thing to say is. They hear so many different things. What kind of advice would you give to parents who want to create a positive relationship around food, around bodies, around health in their household? Number one, I would not demonize any food. All food is good food. This discussion has come up a number of times. People will say, no, no, you can't do that. I'd say, look, if you find somebody on the side of the road who's starving, wherever you are, and that person needs food, and you've got two options. You have a Greek salad with vegetables and julienne vegetables, and you have Yes, um, we've had this literal conversation, conversation on the before. before. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, go back to it. Then, which one do they need? The food we would say, oh, no, that's not the kind you should have. Well, that's the one that gives that person more of what that person needs. And also, understanding when you can how sensitive people are at different ages. And I'm not sure it ever stops about your appearance. And I think we should consider that people can be very healthy at different body sizes and can be very happy. One thing I would also say is that to piggyback off of the fact that kids are always listening, I think most parents wouldn't ever criticize the way their child's body looked, but you might be criticizing yourself in front of them. And that's something that they pick up on. I think back to the example of the tutu and my, my thighs are too big. Chances are, I do not know this, I don't know that it was her mom or somebody in her life, heard somebody say, my legs are too big. It's like, oh, you know, and that plants a little seed in there. So, you know, think about it like, would I say this to my child about their body or about what they're eating? Uh, A lot of people, too, use a lot of like guilt language around food that they had eaten. Say, would you use that kind of verbiage if you were talking directly to your kid, because your kid is listening as if you're talking directly to your kid. That would be my advice on the parent front as a non-parent. The but should and shouldn'ts <laughs> about food and eating and appearance. Yeah, there's way too much toxicity about appearance and food. And people I treat complain about how conversation with others can focus on that and that's the entree and into talking to each other how they look did you get your hair done that looks so good on you have you been losing weight yada 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 and people who've been through this that drives them up the wall and it's like fingernails on a chalkboard and they start to realize how uncomfortable that is to be around oh yeah i In all of my friend groups, particularly female friend groups, I have to set really clear boundaries around that because you are right. There is a world that a lot of people live in where your entire conversation is about food and how bad you're doing at eating correctly, literally, and not in a pathologized way. It's just a conversational way. This Mm -hmm. is just how I talk about myself. This is how I talk about my body and it's really you know i think of that mean girls clip Mm. where you know she hasn't been in high school she hasn't really been around other people she's been isolated with just her and her family 
so has a very positive self-image of herself, uh, comes in and all the girls look at the mirror and say, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this about myself. Each of them has a particular thing they hate. They turn to her, like, what are you going to say? She's like, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't uh, even, uh. I don't even know what to say. I'll, I'll pick something, you know, I'll pick something that I hate about myself. Yeah. That's part of this ritual of our relationship is to comment on how we hate ourselves. I find something that's really effective if you're dealing with friends who are talking in this way, you know, it's not the nicest thing, but it's very effective is to say, God, it's really boring when we talk about that. Like <laughs> that's good. literally just be like, that's really boring. Instead of being like, don't do that. That's bad or whatever, which can kind of make people defensive. Be like, let's, that's boring. Let's talk about something else. It's effective. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's the best strategy, I have recommended, for me. you know, some of the things to do and the yours may be the better yeah. way to say, yeah. can we talk about something important or yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. are y'all, do y'all really feel bad about yourselves a lot? Uh, which really gets it down to the feelings. And yeah. most people, that's when you, okay, no, let's talk about something else. Is yeah. it a serious conversation now? Yeah. Yeah. But honestly, like... Let's order dessert now. Yeah. I am so glad that Zach bounced back. You know, yes. I was feeling a little bit of that secondhand anxiety of seeing symptom after symptom after symptom of a body that is falling apart. And to know that he bounced back in like two weeks yeah, and was feeling better and is... It's just such a happy ending to this. And I'm sure a happy ending for everyone who was related to him and cared about him. Oh, yeah. It was neat seeing when he came back five days later. He said he's eating a lot. He has more energy. He said movements about the same, but actually his hands were notably better. And he met with a dietitian who he, he described as she's fabulous, <laughs> which means he's engaged in the process, has another person who, with whom he feels comfortable talking about this. And he, he said he was very compliant and he even reminded his mom when he needed to eat. Nice. So as if she wasn't already on board with that. Another thing was I asked him to do a little bit of drawing. I wanted him to draw something. I didn't tell him what to draw, just draw something. And he did. What was interesting was he was able to stay still while he did it. Hmm. A curious little thing. He wasn't doing the, the tapping and yeah. the flapping when he was drawing. What did he draw? I don't recall right now, but it really didn't matter because it was fascinating to watch him draw. And he kept going. I said, that's really good. Keep going. And he did. And while he was focused on that, now he was able to do something functional and probably creative. Right. And if we think back to the fact that this tapping could be a symptom of his brain not getting enough fuel, so it's having to create lactic acid fuel, the fact that his brain is working, he's drawing, he's not feeling the need to tap means his brain has found another source of food. That's he's getting right. what it needs yeah. to be engaged in the moment. That's Which right. Just thing. that quickly. And he liked it. He liked drawing, by the way. And whenever I see that creative side coming out, you know, that is purely them. and It's not anybody else because they're having to come up with it. That's why I give very little instruction. I said, just draw something. I don't care. I mean, isn't that just like a beautiful image at the end of this story of just a kid being a kid getting lost in drawing a picture? Like that's what, that's what a 12 year old should be doing. Right. That's, that's a beautiful <laughs> that's thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. So a follow up on him. I did not see him for about four years after that, after he'd done so well. And he was applying for college scholarship. And one of them, I believe, if I remember correctly, was a military academy. And they wanted to make sure there was no eating disorder left. And I wrote a letter saying that all evidence was that he was completely cured. He had not recurred. There was no body image distortion anymore and that they could be confident he was free of the eating disorder. And last I heard, he was on scholarship to a college where he was playing lacrosse. And it was a good school. So I'm sure he continued there as well as in high school to do very well. And that's beautiful, too, like getting the nutrition he needed, actually being able to build muscle to support his body. He was able to be the athlete 
he was kind of hyper training on and focusing on when he was 12. Yeah. That's cool too. That's I remember going to the Y and it turns out we went to the same Y and I every once went on say hello to me, but I saw him working out and he's always seemed so appropriate. Not like some when they get in the gym. Oh. And uh, he was just doing his work and very appropriate and he continued to grow appropriately as a teenager then now as a young man that's you know wonderful to see yeah it's a wonderful success story i also kind of see this like chain of dominoes you know which i hope this podcast kind of is where mom is educated knows a support system so when her son needs something she's able to find it able to support him and I hope that this podcast is one of those connections for some people to at least get a little more education, access to some more resources, or even to know what a red flag is in these cases, right? She knew it was a red flag, even though the initial pediatrician did not. I hope I hope we serve that for at least someone out there yes. at some point, you know? Yeah, one of the resources I would point people to is from the Academy for Eating Disorders, which is the worldwide academic kind of professional organization. And we developed uh, there in in the Academy a committee. Uh, originally, it was the task force, now a committee for medical care standards. And we developed a, little, a booklet on how to do an initial assessment. And people can go to the Academy website, aedweb.org and look for it and they can find it and they can give it to doctors say I want you to follow this to assess how my son or daughter is doing beautiful Well, thank you, Dr. Tyson, for taking this time to share your expertise and have this conversation with me today. I always appreciate what I learned from you. So thank thank you, you. Liz, as always. And thank you, listener, for taking time to learn something new as well. Till next time, I'm Liz. And I'm Ed. And this has been Ed on Ed. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at edonedpodcast. And if you learned something today, please take a moment to rate, review, or follow us. I know Spotify now has a function where you can give us a little review. We would really appreciate it. But always the best way to help our podcast grow is to recommend it to someone you think will get something from our discussions. Thanks for our podcast cover art to at Tyson Creation on Instagram. Thank you as well to In Between Productions for producing and editing this podcast. You can check out their work at imbtwnprod.com. If you want to know more about the work Dr. Tyson does, or if you'd like to contact his office, you can go to Medical Center for Eating Disorders. That is med for eds.com. That four is a number four. If you're interested in being an advertising partner or creating original music, or if you want to send us topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please reach out to edonedpodcast at gmail.com.